So, I want you to try to imagine something for a moment. Imagine that you got on a plane today and you headed to a country that is totally unfamiliar with Christianity, as in millions of people walking around, working, having kids, getting married, who have never heard the gospel. There's places like that, actually. And imagine that you're there, and I mean, of course, you can't speak the language, but you're looking around, and people are going by on bicycles, and people are walking around, and people are waving at their friends across the street, and you see people over here having some food, and all this stuff's happening. You think, oh, gee, look, all these people around me, like, they, they need to hear about Jesus. And then you realize, oh, I've actually got an interpreter with me, so maybe I'll have a go. And you turn to the interpreter next to you and you say, uh, can we just, you know, can, I'm from Australia and maybe I can hold a snake and people, that's what people, I'm at, that's, a, that's the vision people have of you guys around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll draw a crowd that way. And then so, you know, you, you draw a crowd and, and, then, and then they're looking around and you're like, look at the size of this snake, right? You know, because that's how you all are. And, um, and, and so, um, anyway, where was I going? And then you throw, you throw, the, you throw, the, throw the snake aside and then there's the, and there's the crowd. And, and, then the, and then you turn to the interpreter and you say, tell them this. Tell them this, right? And you're, and you're sitting there and you're explaining the gospel and they're, and they're hanging on every word you're saying and, and, and as the interpreter is saying, and, and would you believe it? People actually get saved, like, like on spot, right there. They turn to Christ. Not heaps, but a handful. Praise God. The question is, what do they do next? Like they're, they're there and they're like, how do we follow Jesus now. Like, we, we believe in this Jesus. This, this is great news. And you're like, yes, it's actually called the gospel. It's great news. And, and it's, it's all going through an interpreter. But they're saying, well, what do we do now? How do we follow Jesus? What does that look like in our, in our daily lives? And you're kind of going, ah. And the interpreter goes, ah. And he starts talking to them. He says, I have an idea. We don't have any Christians in this city, but we have one right here. And they point to you. And the interpreter says, why don't we just follow you around and copy how you behave? Because we don't have a model of, like, someone that follows Jesus. So, like, we'll watch you go to work, and we'll just follow you around for a bit, and we'll watch you interact with your friends, and we'll watch the way that you do business, and, and we'll watch the way that you do life, and, and we'll just copy that. Yeah, for it. Remember, this letter that we're reading, it's sent to an island, Crete, that had some new Christians there, right? And, and so what does Paul say? He says, Titus, you set an example for these new Christians, how they're to live. You set an example. You be a trailblazer of good works, 
church there in Crete, you guys want a, a, a live example of, of someone who is following Jesus? Paul's like the interpreter, right? And he goes, you want, a, you want an example? Exhibit A. Look at Titus. You remember last week, we observed different people groups. And Jeanette just read that for us. You've got the old blokes, the gray beards in the flock. You've got the seasoned ladies. You've got younger gals. And then you've got also younger blokes. You remember that? And it's interesting because, as I said last week, when Paul arrives at these young blokes, he simply gives just one command. Do you remember? There's this whole catalog of stuff for, for the ladies. And then the young blokes, is like, be self-controlled. Young guys, be self-controlled. Now, it could be, it's possible, that as he's thinking about young men in general, perhaps, as Paul writes, one young guy in particular comes to mind. Titus. Now, and it's here that he gives this young pastor a personal word. Titus, he addresses him. Titus, you are to set an example, not only for the young guys around you, but for the whole church. You're to be like what I was just explaining, the interpreter saying, exhibit A. And then after this, Paul moves on to addressing slaves. Did you see that? All right. Quick question out of a show of hands. How many of you in here currently are an earthly slave? I don't mean that in like theological ways. I mean like literally you're a slave. Anyone in here this morning? No. How many of you own slaves? Don't raise your hand if you do. So obviously, well, we can just skip this bit, right? Well, no. Let me, let me rephrase this. How many of you, either in the past or currently, work a job where you have a supervisor? Just Judy Carter. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Um, well, and Judy, I'm sure you worked hard. Yeah. Um, or... Maybe, how many of you, let's try again, see if it's awake here, how many of you either currently or in the past, you had some supervisor, sort of manager type role? Great. Okay. All of us in here, right? Some of us in here might have been the, you know, the guy on the bottom of the ladder. Some of us might have been somewhere in the middle, the top, whatever. So what I want to do is we unpack this bit on slaves by way of extension or application to, I want to do that to the employer and employee. That is the relationship within the workplace. Essentially, as we study Titus this morning, I want us to think about gospel living, gospel living for pastors and gospel living for employees. Last week, we talked about the gospel living for oldies and youngsters. Today, as we carry on in Titus, it's going to be gospel living for pastors and gospel living for employees, which that covers the gamut of pretty much everyone in this room. You know, the first bit's going to be kind of Dan and I, <laughs> and then the rest we get to just that blanket pretty much all of us in here. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
What a privilege it is to come around as your people and study your word. Lord, you knew exactly uh, you knew exactly what this church on Crete needed, and Lord, you know all of our hearts, the depths of our sin. Lord, you know the way that we're even thinking now. So we pray that you would illuminate your word as I preach it, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. So I wonder if you've ever had this experience. I wonder if you ever had this experience. You, uh, you know, you're, you want to invite your neighbor to church. Or maybe you have a non-Christian family member and you want to invite them to church. Or perhaps a co-worker. And, you, and you've been wanting to do it. And, and then when you, 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 you sort of get up the courage and you say, hey, look, I, I, you know, Easter's coming up. And, oh, it's Good Friday, and would you, what, what do you reckon? Would you, would you want to be, maybe just, could you think about maybe checking out church, possibly? And you're kind of anticipating their response, and it's like, I'm not going there. Church is full of hypocrites. You ever experienced something like that before? Yeah. Yeah, hypocrite's a fascinating word. Um, it was used in ancient times in theater, actually, uh, a hypocrite was someone who played a role uh, in, in a skit, in a play. They would have a mask, right? Various masks that they would use. And so, you know, like picture fan of the, of the opera, right? You know, like the, they'd sort of exchange their, their mask. Today, when we consider someone that's a hypocrite, well, it's the same idea. We actually say that person is, is they're, they're two-faced. They're two-faced. They're, they don't practice what they preach, right? They're... they're they sort of hear in church maybe with one face, but at home they have another face. You with me? Paul's quite concerned about someone that does that, particularly pastors, because he calls Titus to set the example, to showcase himself, as it were. Titus is to showcase, display his life as an example in at least two areas, his good works and his good teaching. Come to verse 7, have a look with me, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about in Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Notice his good works and his good teaching. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Okay, so what, what pattern is Titus, and, and I'd say actually all pastors, what pattern are they called to set? What areas of their lives are they to showcase as good works, as godly, as, as God-fearing? just here at church. No. In everything. Can you see the words there? In all respects. Not just some realms, like here at church or, you know, when people are watching, but in every area of their lives. In other words, people shouldn't hear what ministers say, then watch how they live and discover 
glaring incongruities. What a disaster it is when some pastor falls into some horrible money embezzlement or affair or whatever, and yet he preaches fire on Sundays, but then, you know, basically his life looks like hell during the week. So, so Paul is saying there shouldn't be glaring inconsistencies. There's also going to be, you know, Dan and I aren't perfect. I know that's going to be a shocker to you. So there's not perfection there, but there shouldn't be this chalk and cheese of, of what you're saying and how you're living. In everything, Titus, he says, set them an example. Let no one be able to point the finger at you and say, yeah, his teaching's pretty spot on, but in this area of his life, not so much. I think one could make the case, really, that the first prerequisite, the first prerequisite in a spiritual leader is godliness, is likeness to Jesus. In the 19th century, the famous Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, put it this way, it is not great talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. I wonder if you, I wonder if you agree with that deep down. We like to follow charismatic people. We, some of us are quite gifted at our abilities to lead and cast vision and communicate, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I wonder if we would agree with Robert Murray McShane at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what people really need is a model of good works. I remember when I was a youth pastor and there was this one gal, Daisy, that my wife and I invested a lot of time into and when we would have kids graduate out of the youth group in grade 12, we'd say, hey, so tell us something, a way that you've been impacted, uh, you know, by either something you've learned or, you know, during your time here, and we, we called it 180. That was the name of our youth group. You know, get it, you're going this way, you chuck a youth. Anyway, um, it was cool. Um, so, uh, actually, I didn't even make the logo. I had them make it, but anyway, they wanted to do it. So, um, so. I said, Daisy, you know, t- tell me, tell me what, what was the, what really the most impactful thing for you? And I was like, <sighs> go ahead, lay it on me, the preaching, right? Come on. I mean, most of these youth pastors are just giving you junk, and I am, te- man, we're like going through, and because these kids were just like switched on, like they were excited. We were, we were like, we were digging into Wayne Grudem and stuff. I kid you not. These are like 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Like this was good stuff, right? So you guys can do it too. Okay, but and that's not my point. But so, so we, were, we were really having a go, and, 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 and we were investing in this gal, and she'd be over our house, April, you had her in Bible study almost every week, right? You'd meet with her, all this stuff, and, and, and I'd say, all right, Daisy, you know, what was it? Come on, hit me with it. You know, and she goes, oh, I was just watching your marriage, you and April. I mean, that's cool, but like, give me a little bit more. Come on. You know, and she's like, no, you just, the example that you set, the way that, uh, you led April the way that she supported and, and loved you, and, and um, that, that's it. I don't have that in my life. It's just your, your godly example. I was like, I mean, that's cool, but come on. Right, but I think at the end of the day, that's what he's saying, look, in your, your life is to be marked by someone, that there should be a pattern that you're setting in your life that is a model of good works. It's the exhibit A thing. You know, my 
might surprise you. You know, in the book of Acts, when Peter has this interaction with a non-Jew, Cornelius. Do you remember that story? He's, he's up on a roof and he sees all these things that he shouldn't eat and he says, eat, eat. And he goes, no, I'll never, I'll never do that. And, and the point is you need to actually bring the gospel to unclean people, to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And he's interacting with Cornelius. And it might, it might surprise you in Acts 10, 34, Peter, listen to what he says. He's, he's, ta- he's recounting Jesus, his ministry and And he's talking to Cornelius, because Cornelius wouldn't have any understanding of this. And he says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee. Listen to this. After the baptism that John preached. So you see how he's recounting, can you hear how he's recounting all? And then listen, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. That's like, that just sounds like something straight out of an AOG church, right? I mean, like, Holy Spirit and power, right? Woo! And then, stop, right there. What do you think he's going to say next? As he's recounting all of this, what do you suppose the next thing Peter would focus on? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good. There it is. How he went around doing good. You see, for Peter, that was the first distinguishing hallmark of our Lord. In everything, he pursued the good. Friends, this is where credibility as Christians begins. That in our lives are marked by seeking after that which is good. It's precisely what Paul is stressing to Titus here. That his life as a pastor would be sending out signals. And so he reminds him, Titus, in everything, set them an example. Do you remember last week how there was to be this contrast? You have the false teachers who needed to be silenced. Remember that? You still with me? Half of you are. There's these false teachers that they needed to be silenced, right? Where what was Titus to do? He's to speak. Remember that? You still with me? Okay. Titus is to contrast these guys, not only in what he says, but actually in how he lives. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. Talking about the false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, whilst these false teachers are unfit for any good work, Titus was to be a model of good works. While they were to be silenced, Titus is to speak. He's to be a model of good works, exhibit A. As Martin Luther once said, because the heathen cannot see our faith, they ought to see our works, then hear our doctrine, and then be converted. I like that. Because the heathen cannot see our faith, they ought to see our works, then hear our doctrine, and then be converted. Titus is to be an example in his character and also in his teaching. Not just in his character, 
not just in his character, because there's a danger here that I think in, uh, uh, that, that's quite prevalent in the West, I would argue here on the coast, an anti-intellectualism in Christianity that says, just, just be salt and light and don't worry about doctrine, that's divisive. False dichotomy, stupid conclusion. Because actually, he doesn't just say, well, be a good mark, and then they'll follow Jesus. No, no, no. Not only in the way you live, but also in what you say. They go, they go hand in hand, you see? Two sides of the same coin, if you want to use the phrase. Look at, because look what he says in verse 7. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. You know, the false teachers, what were they in it for? They were in it for shameful game. Remember he said that? Whereas Titus was to teach with honesty with integrity. His teaching is not to be corrupt. He's to show integrity. And then the word, do you remember when we talked about this last week, the old blokes, they're to have dignity. Remember the word grave? We talked about Eeyore, you remember that? But it's, it's to have a gravitas about their life. You remember that with the old blokes? They're, they're to be walking with the Lord. There's supposed to be a, a gravity. doesn't mean they need to be, have frowns on their faces, but, but there to be, there's to be a, a weightiness to the way that they live. And, and same word is used here. Paul says, there should be a gravitas in your teaching, a, a, a weightiness when you preach. Because we live in a day and age full of entertainment, too many sermons become let's be honest, comedy routines, light, fluffy, and jovial. It's like, visit half the churches around here and it's just evangelifish. They're just lucid, there's nothing to them, don't get too close, they'll sting you. I'm, I, so, how many of you have heard before, I'm a true, a true story here, not that my other stories are fake, but um, how many of you heard of uh, the church Willow Creek before? Bill Hybels? So I was an intern at Willow Creek with Bill Hybels, okay? And I was 18 years old, and um, the church that I was a part of, they loved Willow Creek, because back in the 90s, we've all figured this out now that it's all junk, but, but back in the 90s, it was really cool. It was really cool. It was the thing called seeker-friendly, woo! Just, you know, adapt the message to non-Christians and make church how they want so they'll feel comfortable, and then you can have a bigger church and you can write a book about it. But... So they sent me to this big church called Willow Creek. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a little bit bitter about it. You know, but so, so, so anyway, I went to this church called Willow Creek, if you could call it a church. Went to this place called Willow Creek, and um, they were going to teach me how to do ministry, right? And, and I was like, okay, I'm keen, I'm, I'm green, I'm, I'm 18, and, and um, you know, I, I want to know how to preach. And so they said, well, do you feel called to preach? And then so they said, you need to come. On Wednesdays, we've got a preaching seminar course. We're going to train up. They didn't even use it. They, they don't like the word preaching because that's too antiquated. So they said, let's use like, you know, Bible talk communicators, right? Ugh, whatever. And so um, I'm like, okay, so I'll go to this thing. And um, sure enough, there I am. And, and I sit down and I've got my Bible. And I'm like, if I feel called to the ministry, I mean, isn't this going to be a lot of my job doing what, like what I'm doing right now? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, get ready to take your notes. And, and they, this is old school, right? So this is the 90s. They wheel in a television you know, remember those, like, you know, like in school? That'd be like one of those little... And they say, okay, 
First thing we need to start with, if you're going to learn how to preach and you need to learn how to captivate people, is we're going to watch this video, and it's, it's going to be quite a while because we're going to watch the whole thing, and then we're going to discuss it, and, and then we're going to see how we can emulate it and watch it again. And it's, it's actually Seinfeld and his stand-up comedy. No joke. And I was like, oh, sorry. I thought I was going to learn how to preach the Bible. And, and, and they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, sure, you might get there. But, but look, watch how Seinfeld, he's an incredible communicator. Watch how he captivates an audience. He, may, he gets them feeling comfortable. You need to really think about the seekers, non-Christians, in, in the room and how you can get them laughing. And, and I can be a funny guy. I know, I know I'm like, you see me like, boo-boo on a Sunday. But if you hang out with me, I even get Dan Kenny to laugh occasionally. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> occasionally, yeah, jerk. Uh, I even, you know, I, and I'm sitting there going, I'm sorry, this, do, 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 do you see anything wrong with that there? Massive wrong. Now, again, you shouldn't just, no laughing or smiling. Like, that's not what I'm after. But I, I feel like there should be, as I'm looking at the qualifications here, there should be a gravitas about what you're saying. You know, otherwise, what are you going to create? You're going to create a, a, a pop concert with a TED Talk. Joel, um, Jason Meyer writes this. Do you know what makes for good preaching? Do you know what makes for good preaching? The pastor opens with a funny joke, strings together a series of disconnected Bible verses and clever anecdotes, and then closes with an inspirational quote. But... Is this the kind of preaching that most glorifies God, honors his word, and edifies his people? No, but it sure is the kind of preaching we see around here today, isn't it? We need churches that preach the word of God with integrity and dignity, not pop concerts with a TED Talk. We need pastors who both in their teaching and in their day-to-day -day speech are marked by soundness and seriousness, and gravitas. And if that happens, if Titus is an example of that in his good works and in his teaching, well, what will the result be in verse 8? Can you see it? So that, any, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See that there? If, if someone, an opponent, slings mud at you, It'll be baseless. They'll have no proper basis for doing so. It'll be unfounded. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you notice there how he said, Paul does not say about you, but about us? Referring to the Christian community as a whole? All right, so now at this point, Paul shifts and focuses on slaves. So let's now look in verse 9. Bond servants or slaves, depending on your translation, are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, I think it would be helpful for a little context here, because when we hear slaves in the 21st century, we, it's a, it's, we have a bad taste in our mouths, and rightly so. Um, certain historians say that in the Roman world at this time, so when Paul's writing here, 
there were as many as 60 million slaves. Now, there's no way to prove that, but even if, there's, even if half of that's true, if there's 30 million slaves, that's insane. There, there were a number of waves, though, that someone could become a slave. They, slaves sometimes were prisoners of war. Um, sometimes you were in debt and you became a slave. Um, or you were born into that, inherited from Roman law. This kind of slavery, though, was different than, say, what we know about primarily in my home country in America, um, where Africans were kidnapped from their lands and forced to do forced labor by white Europeans. People in Roman times would have slaves that actually shared the same ethnicity. And some of them were mistreated. Others weren't mistreated. So, and Paul shows no partiality, though. It's interesting in terms of treatment. Because did you notice that he addresses them there in the church? Slaves. He doesn't just like ignore them, but he actually has some dignity to address them. And he outlines for them, hey, slaves, if you're Christians, here's actually your expect the expectations that I have for you. In other words, you know, ah, whatever, you're just slaves. No, no, slaves, you're to live this way. And, and do you see how he then begins to outline that? How he spells that out? Notice what he's saying. He says, you're to be submissive to your masters in everything. You're to be well-pleasing. You're not to be argumentative. You know, that's probably the idea of talking back to your master or maybe talking behind their back about your master, as it would have been tempting to do, no doubt. And you're not to be, you see the word there, pilfering? It's an interesting word. We don't use that word, do we? Um, it's, we do? I've never heard it. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, yeah. Okay. But um, so uh, I, we, don't, we don't typically say pilfering. Um, but what we do say is um, sometimes people will... Um, They'll be dishonest in their, in their workplaces. They can, um, let, let me give you some examples of what pilfering would be. Uh, pilfering would be, say, not having one of your, like not working the hours that you're clocked in for, okay? That's dishonest. It's dishonest, it's, uh, it's, it's overextending your lunch break. It's, um, it's, put, it's, it's stealing, pilfering stealing in a way that's a bit kind of sneaky. Like Ananias and Sapphira. You know in Acts, they put some money aside, which they had the right to do, but then they lied about it. That was pilfering. That, that's, that's what pilfering is. And he says, if, if you're not argumentative, you're not being dodgy, and sort of doing, you know, half effort at work, then what will happen? What will the result be? It'll be like this beautiful woman with a gorgeous necklace around her neck. What, what am I talking about? Well, look here. Look. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn. The word there is, that's where we actually get our word cosmetic from. It's... Uh, it's like this. Uh, the gospel, and I talked about is this beautiful woman. The gospel is the beautiful woman. Our lives are not. 
were like the necklace around her neck. That's what our lives are like. We're, we're, we're not the woman. Our lives are not the gospel. Our lives, uh, the gospel, our, our work, our, our, our good works, as Titus is talking about here, it can't save anyone. It's the message of the gospel that saves. But our lives, our work, can either attract or repel people, and that's the necklace. That makes sense? So that's the adornment that he's talking about here, adorning the gospel. Now, Paul, it's interesting here because he doesn't just bring up this idea of slaves and, and masters just here in Titus. Actually, go to the left in your Bible. I want to just quickly look at Ephesians because he spends a little bit more time here talking to bondservants or slaves and their masters. So let's, um, let's actually jump right into it in Ephesians chapter 6 because it's, there's some helpful principles here when we think about our jobs, our bosses, and all of that, okay? Notice here in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, he says to be obedient to your masters, but with a view of something. So you can switch it. Employees, obey your boss. <laughs> with the, why? With a view of something. Look what he says. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Can you see that there? He says to be obedient to their masters, and they are to obey with a view of Christ and their relationship to him as they show respect to these earthly bosses or masters. Servants of Christ doing the will of God. Interesting word, master, there. It makes you wonder if Paul's playing on the word. It's the word Lord. Could be doing a word play there because it's actually a mark of distinction when they obey that they actually know Jesus and that the gospel is working out in their lives. You know, your boss might be lousy and be a jerk, but it, in God's sovereign providence, it's still currently your boss, right? Uh, the same can be said here between the relationship of slaves and their masters, right? When they serve their earthly lords wholeheartedly, they're actually serving the king of kings and lord of lords. Look again at verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, notice, from the heart. And then if you drop down to verse 9, he says this to masters. Notice in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Can you see this principle of a mutuality there, of reciprocation? They were to treat these slaves as they themselves want to be treated, not threatening. Uh, there were, was virtually no accountability back in these days to how masters wanted to treat their slaves. They could, I mean, in the ancient world, they could mistreat them, they could even kill them, and there would be no accountability virtually to that. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. Listen, if you're a Christian, not in the body of Christ, friend, you serve both the same master as they serve who is in heaven. He's the boss. And this master is totally impartial. And you see, it was this truth, this idea of God being impartial, 
from Christianity that eventually undermine the system of slavery. Both master and slave have a common lord. In the book of Philemon, that's written about a, slave, a runaway slave, right? But he refers to Philemon, and he says to treat him as this slave, as a brother. That's the equalizer. And there is something critically important here, and that is Christianity undermined, has in the past, not always, undermined slavery from within. Paul, I think, though, it's, it, it is helpful to see here, I think this is a big one, Paul's not a, a social crusader. His biggest concern is for the spread of the gospel in churches and in the world, and the rest will follow. Basically, he doesn't begin by trying to fix a system, because that is not the root of the problem. The issue, the root of the problem, is the heart of man, sin. So he begins by spreading the gospel and then letting its truth penetrate, deepen, and then, like a ripple effect, affect the rest of the culture. William Wilberforce, do you know that name? He's a great example of that. And so if these principles that we're learning here, given to this church by Paul, if, if, if they were to take them on, clearly he, he, he's writing both to this imperfect relationships between masters and, and slaves. If, if that's true, how much more, how much more can we take this and download it to our employee-employer relationships? So look again, look again. I just want you to kind of have your mind this way. Employees, verse 5, obey your boss. <laughs> employees obey your boss, regardless of what he or she is like. If they're a Christian or not, we need to listen to what they say. Not in a way that's going to cause you, not, not, not oh, so what if they make me sin? Come on. I'm not talking about that. And notice it says earthly. You're, do you see that? It's only temporary. God has allowed bosses to be in their position and to be yours so that you might learn submission. Exactly how is this submission done? Well, verse 5 again, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, with respect and sincerity. You know, the opportunities to whinge about our bosses, it's everywhere, is it not? To complain, ah, oh, this is the worst boss in the world. It might be true. But being a Christian in the workplace should produce a sense of reliability for us, regardless of our boss, productivity, and ha being, having a cooperative spirit about us, a teachability about us. I wonder how many people know in your workplace that you're a Christian. And I don't mean that like, are you telling people that you're a Christian? No, I just like think about this. If people know you're a Christian, I, have you noticed um, that when they know you're a Christian, they're just looking for, ah, hypocrite. Y have you noticed that? I didn't say this in the beginning of the ser sermon, but when, when people say, I'm not going to go to churches full of hypocrites, i probably not helpful. I usually respond, there's always room for one more, <laughs> right? Um, just, but that's part of my just kind of, I'm a bit annoyed, right? I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit like I'm, I'm kind of getting them back. <laughs> Anyway, pray for me. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, uh, but look, um, if people know that you're a Christian in the workplace, they're watching you. They are. 
They just, they, because they, they have this, this caricature of a Christian who's just a hypocrite. And so they're just looking for it. But in the workplace, see that as, seriously, see that as your ministry. And I don't mean it's the place where you're just not working because you're just blabbing your mouth, telling everyone to repent, right? There's, there's, a, there's a difference of someone who's not ever sharing the gospel and they're just working, they're like a, you know, a, addicted to their work, and then someone who's not really working at all and all they're doing is preaching to everybody the whole time. There's a balance. There should be, your, people should see in you uh, someone who is so committed to the work that God has given you. That is like, oh yeah, but works were result of the fall. No, it is not. They were working in the garden prior to the fall. God has ordained work for us. That's a lazy idea. Oh, it came up. No, no, no. We're to work to the glory of God, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, look again at verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Well, but I do work for man. Do you, can you get underneath your job for a second? Think about that. What's the propelling, driving thing for your work? It's not ultimately, ah, oh, my boss, if I don't come up with this. No, no, no. It's to the Lord, ultimately. You have to see God as your boss. And so, if it, just think about this. If, if, if the Lord is your boss, do you, think it's, do you think it's okay just to do kind of an average, kind of half-hearted effort in your job? Like, what do you reckon if God's like, I've got a job for you to do today? You know, let's say that it's, it's hot. I know it's hot today, uh, but, you know, you got you know, you to you mow the lawn. You got to mow this lawn out here, all right? And, and you're kind of like, yeah, eh, it's a bit hot, eh. And then you just sort of do a half job. I mean, wouldn't that be crazy? The Lord's sitting there, like, waiting for you, and then you show up late, and then you, you, you know, nick off of work early, and there's still all these bits that you haven't done properly, and, and you, you kind of were a bit dodgy and underhanded about it, and then you, you had to go get more petrol for the, you know, for the leaf blower, and it's just, it just looks like junk, and, and like, do you honestly think it's like, well done, good and faithful servant? Congratulations. No, 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 no. You'd want to work. The Lord is sitting there saying, hey, I'm, I'm watching your, your work here. Look, don't, don't divorce, don't separate, don't, don't subcategory this for what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Like, like, think your work and think this is how I'm supposed to glorify God in my job, the way that I work, the way that I treat people, what I say. Now, listen what Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Who's your boss? It's Jesus at the end of the day. Now, here's this key word. Did you see it there in verse 6? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. Um, the key word here is this idea of knowing. Verse 8, sorry, I said verse 6. Verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord. 
do you know that? Is, that? is that what's driving you? They were familiar, right? And, and he's reminding them what they're to be taught. And that is, even if their masters don't notice their hard work or mistreat them, their heavenly master is always watching. And in the end, he will reward them. Do you see how easily this can apply to places here at the work, at your workplaces? It seems that, you know, there are two extremes. On the one hand, you have folks that work so hard, they separate the job from their ministry. Basically, they work a secular job, and so they fulfill their assigned tasks, but through the course of their career, they forget or don't think to share the gospel with their coworkers. That's one extreme. On the other hand, you have others that are so focused on sharing the gospel, they hardly work and they don't see their jobs as their ministry, at least as they should. So that's to employees. Now to bosses, look at verse 9. Masters, bosses, do the same with your coworkers, with your employees, and stop threatening them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. See, if you're a boss, your aim, if God has given you this role, your aim is to show Christ-likeness. Treat workers fairly with respect. Don't lord it over them. Remember, you have the same goal as your employee, to honor Christ. To honor Christ. Is that helpful? Yeah. All right, let's close up with what's the gospel motivation here, right? Because I, I don't want to just say, go be good workers, right? Um, which should, you should. You should really actually do that. You should see your, uh, I think I've banged that drum. But, but remember, we want to read Titus. Let's get back there from the bottom up. Remember I said that? So what should be the, what's the foundation for you to be a, because uh, maybe you'll have a go at it tomorrow. If, I'm, if all you get right now is go be a good worker, you, it might last for a few days. But what should be like the driving force? It's the gospel. Go back to Titus, to not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then he says, zealous for good works are produced by embracing the gospel, the grace of God. Gospel changes from the inside out, not the outside in. You understand? A legitimate encounter with the grace of God is the only thing that can produce change at the level of our deepest desires. The gospel produces such loving and longing for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we desire to honor Him with our lives, how we work how we conduct ourselves at work tomorrow. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a, you know, if you were going to memorize anything in Titus, it would probably be these, this section right here. This is, this is just jam-packed of truth. I mean, and look at verse 13. This is one of several New Testament passages that, that explicitly identifies Jesus as God. Our great God and Savior, Jesus. Can you hear it? Did you see it? Jesus is God. That's as clear as day. Friend, listen, Jesus' divinity is not just some abstract truth, 
but a transforming reality that propels us to good works. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's by embracing Christ as God Almighty and being knowing that you are redeemed, that shapes a gospel shape to the way that you're going to work tomorrow and the next day. Make sense? So I'm, it's not just be a good worker. It's I get who I am. I am I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I will honor God in the way that I work tomorrow and the following day. And, and look, all of us, even if you're retired, all of us has work to do. Tune into last week's sermon on that. Okay? All of us. This is until our dying breath. Whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, let's do all to things to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of being able to come in an air-conditioned, safe space. We, Lord, we take that for granted. Forgive us for all the ways that we are not even, as we sit there in our chairs now, um, disagreeing, Lord, not with a man standing up front, but with you and your word. We pray that you'd grant us, uh, Lord, that you'd convict us, that you would grant repentance to us. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we go to work tomorrow and the following day and after that, Lord, help us, give, remind us of these truths that you would, this wouldn't just be a, a compartmentalized faith, but Lord, this would be played out in our workplaces, that we would honor you as our boss. Lord, we're only able to do that because you came, Lord Jesus. You died in our place. You rose again and you redeemed us. We're a people that's been purchased, purchased by you, Lord. So make us from that truth zealous for good works, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. That is such a wonderful passage that, again,